Welcome to Allocation Disorder. I am Sam Stasekel, joined as always by Paul Tenorio, brought to you this week by Buffalo Joe's, Buff Joe's, great establishment. Check it out for all your buff needs. Um, Paul, how's it going today? We're recording during the daytime. Our schedule's all messed up. Yeah, no bourbon during this show, no, uh, I don't know, darkness in the room and like weird Skype video calls <laughs> of each other where like we have hoodies over our heads and can barely see each other's faces. Just uh, everything exposed <laughs> and out there. I think that's going to lead to, a, uh, I don't know, a better episode. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. All your buff needs. Everything exposed. It's, it's all hand in hand. Um, we are recording on Wednesday afternoon. The U.S. men's national team roster was named earlier today for the upcoming friendlies over in Europe against Jamaica. That one will be played in Austria on March 25th and at Northern Ireland on March 28th. Uh, so we will have a good deal to say about that. On that roster is Eunice Musa, uh, who committed to the U.S. men's national team program earlier this week. Uh, he, of course, was eligible to represent England, Italy, and Ghana, as well as the U.S. So, you know, he had, he had his final top four in the, uh, in the recruiting mix and then ended up picking the, uh, the, the U.S. flag hat, I guess, if we're going full college football analogy here. Um, so that's huge news for the U.S. Uh, so a lot to work through there. Also going to be talking about some MLS offseason stuff, basically how it's been weird and slow and what we make of all of that, uh, as well as a couple developments down in USL and some potential transfer talk uh, for MLS and American players. So with that, Paul, do we want to go through the 26-man the list here all the way, start to finish? What are your overall thoughts on this roster? What are the main takeaways for you? Well, I think the the first of all, the big news was no Weston McKinney. Um, speaking with Greg Berhalter today, he said essentially Weston's got a slight injury that he's been dealing with, so they're giving him the international break to have a chance to heal up, to to rest and let that let that uh, get better. Uh, he's playing a lot of games for for Juve right now, um, but otherwise, I think this is not that surprising of a roster. It, it really is actually an interesting camp because we're going to see two very different teams between the first game and the second game. Um, seven players on this roster due to COVID-19 restrictions will be traveling back to their teams after the first games. So all of the players who are based in Germany, as well as Reggie Cannon, who's based, uh, plays for Boa Vista in Portugal will be available for the first game, but not the second game. And I think that actually is, is going to be a pretty cool opportunity to see pretty much everybody on this roster, maybe barring the goalkeeper position. Um, and I think we'll see Greg Berhalter play around a little bit with the lineup, uh, as a result. Um, and, and so, you know, for me, I think that that leads to a couple key areas to watch. One being the striker position. I think we're going to see a lot of Josh Sargent in that first game. Um, you know, in fact, when you look at who's returning to their clubs, I think you can see probably three players who are going to start in that first game, Gio Reyna, Josh Sargent, and Tim Weah. Um, and, and so I, I definitely want to see how he performs. And that opens up some opportunities in the second game for Daryl DK and Nico Giacchini. Um, and, and then you know, I think on the back line as well, I think it gives an opportunity for maybe Chris Richards to, to play significant minutes in that first game because he'll return to Hoffenheim afterwards. So um, maybe we see a Brooks-Richards pairing for the first time. Sam, what, what stuck out to you? Anyone in particular that surprised you or that you think is notable here? Well, we already talked about Musa a little bit. Um, his inclusion, not so notable. The news from earlier this week was notable. Um Berhalter talked about that. We were both in that press conference with him earlier. Uh, and I think he called it a huge win, essentially. Um, called it, called it a great, great guy, great talent, huge addition to the program was, was one of the quotes. Looking forward to working with him, all that stuff. We've outlined that on previous shows, how, how he really affects how the U.S. can line up in terms of sliding into one of those central positions. In terms of other things that, that kind of stood out to me, Matthew Hoppy, uh, was one who wasn't called, who sort of stood out. Uh, Berhalter talked about that as well. Uh, basically it's, it was sort of like a weird COVID numbers game there. Hoppy is based in Germany, plays for Schalke. He would have only been able, available for the first match. Berhalter essentially said, uh, without quite fully saying it, that Sargent is going to play the full 90 in that first game against Jamaica. So Hoppy wouldn't have had any time with the team. 
so they elected to, to leave him behind. Uh, same sort of story for DeAndre Yedlin, who would have, I think, missed the first match, been available for the second. Um, so, so that was kind of one of the takeaways is like Burhalter saying, don't read too much into these things because some of these players were not called simply because of COVID restrictions. Um, but for me, you know, it's less about who is or isn't on the roster and more about just being, this is like the first choice group right now for the most part heading into a summer that is going to be really, really important. A second half of the year that's going to be really, really important and full of competitive games, starting with the Nations League in June. Um, and so this is kind of the last chance to tweak and to get things right and to build a base. Um, and there are a few guys who aren't here who are with the U23s that you would normally expect. I think probably Jackson Ewell would fall into that group. Uh, you know, Burhalter name check Matt Turner, uh, goalkeeper for the Revs as another one who would likely be with the full group. But for the most part, this is, this is the full team right now. And, I think it's going to just be really interesting to see how they gel and how they mix, what Pulisic looks like. Uh, you know, he hasn't played for the national team in quite some time. Uh, and he hasn't been playing for Chelsea, as we documented uh, last week on the show. So, curious to see that. Curious to see Chris Richards, what he looks like following his move to Hoffenheim. Um, and yeah, those are kind of the big takeaways for, for me. Uh, I don't know if if I missed anything there. Is there anything under the radar, Paul, that's sort of standing out to you at this point? I think for for me, under the radar um, is kind of the emergence of some players from MLS that have started to carve out a role within this team. Uh, you asked about one of them in the press conference today, Kellen Acosta, who you know started a World Cup qualifier at the Azteca. And, um, you know, has, has worked his way back into the senior national team picture. He came, he's been a part of a couple camps now. I think he was in December camp and then again in January camp, played in both of those and did enough to impress to be a part of this team, even with the full strength roster. Um, and Greg Berhalter talked about how he's a good example for players to keep kind of grinding, keep trying to work your way back in and play well at your club and people will take note. Um, Luca de la Torre was another name, um, in this camp, I think who's done that, but, you know, for me, Kellen Acosta kind of starts to fit into that group with Sebastian Legette, Paul Ariola, of guys where you can see Greg Berhalter appreciates how they approach the job and how they approach the work in camp. And, you know, I would expect to see more of those names, uh, more of those three in these, these future camps with, with meaningful games to come. Um, you know, and, and I do want to go back to something you noted, which is just that. Basically, if you have any question about a player who was left off in this camp, you know, whether it's, you know, you, you mentioned two of them, Yedlin and Hoppy, you know, you can bring up, uh, Dwayne Holmes, you can bring up Sebachu, you can bring up any number of players. And, and Greg Berhalter's take was basically like, look, we had to kind of look at where we had minutes for players. And because some players were only available for one game, that means other players were only really going to play in the other game. And so, What's the point of flying somebody out to camp if they're not, if they can't find minutes for them? Um, they didn't see the value in doing that. So, um, you know, I just want to reiterate that again, because I think we're going to get a lot of questions and I've already been getting questions on Twitter about why so and so wasn't included. Just because we didn't mention their names here on the podcast, pretty much every name that you guys are wondering about, um, wasn't included because of that, that kind of COVID juggle that Sam mentioned. I did want to kind of go back to Acosta real quick. Um, you know, you mentioned kind of the ups and downs he had back in 2017 when he was starting that qualifier in the Azteca and they were playing, there was a gold cup that, that summer and he was expected to really take the reins at that tournament and probably earn a move from Dallas to Europe. Uh, he was playing really well. I think he was 21 years old at the time. Uh, and he was kind of the hot young thing in MLS and in U.S. soccer. And he played really poorly at the Gold Cup and kind of fell off big time for like a full year after that for Dallas until he got traded for Colorado. Uh, kind of kind of in the hinterlands there with the Rapids for a couple of years. Uh, and then Robin Frazier came through and he's really improved. And I think you mentioned it, Paul, and Burhalter mentioned it, but it's a good story, first of all. And second of all, I'm really curious to see where he goes on his career trajectory from here. Because I think he's got the talent to be a part of the senior national team and to be a really good player in MLS. 
I don't know if Europe is in the cards for him at this point, just because of his age. I can't remember his contract status off of the top of my head. Um, but that, that would, that would certainly play a role in, in his future as well. Um, but I am really curious to see where, where he goes. Cause this was a guy who was a, a hot prospect, fell off and now has worked his way back into the mix. And I think that's a really cool thing to see. Uh, I'm curious to see where it goes. A couple of other things. Brian Reynolds getting getting a call up to this camp, I think is notable. He just made his debut for Roma after he moved there in the winter. Uh, Brendan Aronson with kind of like the A-team. Maybe, is, is that for the first time? Correct me if I'm wrong there. Um, it is. I'm curious to see what that looks like and where he lines up if Berhalter plays him out wide, maybe as a winger in an attacking role, if he plays him in one of the two number eight spots. Um be interesting to see how that experiment goes if he gets time at all. You know, he might not. Those are those are some pretty crowded positions for the U.S. Um, so I'm interested in that as well. Um, you want to go through and, and and kind of pick out a little bit of a starting eleven here, and, and then we, we can talk a little bit about Efra Alvarez as well because there were some notable comments there. But but you want to pick a pick a starting eleven when when everyone is available for that first game against Jamaica on the 25th. Yeah, I've got a lineup in mind. Um, I thought. One thing that was interesting that changed from uh, the first little news story that we wrote for The Athletic to after Burhalter's press conference, um, I, I'm switching where I have Christian Pulisic and Gio Reyna in this first game uh, from where I originally had it. Greg Burhalter mentioned that um, he plans to look at Christian Pulisic in a, a number of different positions or a couple different spots, I think is what he said. Um, so I, I think he's going to play centrally in the first game. So I have... Um, Zach Steffen starting in goal in the first game, Serginio Dest starting at left back, John Brooks left center back, Br- Chris Richards right center back, both Brooks and Richards will have to leave. Um, Reggie Cannon on at right back also going to have to leave after that first game um, with a midfield trio of Tyler Adams, Eunice Musa and Christian Pulisic. I think he'll come inside to play just as he's been kind of asked to do with Chelsea um, in more of a, a number 10 playmaker role. Um with Gio Reyna, Josh Sargent, and Tim Weah up top, all three of those players are going to have to depart camp after this first game. So I expect all three of them to start. So that's my 11 in the first game. Uh, you cut out on me and, and what we're peeling behind the curtain here. The internet at, at my place is not so great sometimes. So you cut out on me on the center backs. Who did you have in, at center back? I have the two that are going to have to depart after camp, John Brooks and Chris Richards. Okay, that's sort of what I expected. I pretty much agree with your 11. I think that's a good call with Pulisic, considering what Burhalter said. That was something that I flagged in that press conference. Is like, hey, we're probably going to get a wrinkle here. Um, I don't know if it's going to come in the first game or the second. I'd be curious. If he starts, if he starts on the wing, who do you start in that number eight spot? Is it Legette? Is it Aronson? What do you think? I think it's Gio Reyna because I you ha- I think you have to get both Reyna and Wea on both. the field because they're both leaving. So I think whether it's yeah. Christian on the wing and Reyna in the cent- in center mid or Pulisic at central position and Reyna on the wing, um, I think that it'll be Reyna, Wea, Pulisic, and Sargent as kind of the bigger attacking okay. players. And, and maybe maybe we see something where one of them plays plays thirty minutes on the wing and then they switch. Um, perhaps, uh, Reyna didn't look amazing in those central roles, uh, last time around against Wales, uh, in particular, and I'm blanking on the second opponent right now for some weird reason. That should be the starting 11 roughly, I think for the first game, pretty safe. The second one, who knows? I think we're going to get a big dose maybe of Daryl DK in that one in Northern Ireland. I think that's one that I would be excited to see. Um, maybe, maybe Kellen Acosta. Maybe Luca De La Torre. Um, so some of the guys that are further down the pecking order, more on the fringe of the overall pool. Um, for, for those of you that like getting a look at those guys and how they, how they play together in the U.S. system, the Northern Ireland game will be a good chance for that. Although that one's, that one comes at a weird time for Northern Ireland. It's right between two qualifiers for them. Um, and it's like, you know, qualifier on, and then like three days later is the game against the U.S., and then three days later is another qualifier. So it's not going to be Northern Ireland's best group, I think it's fair to say. I think one interesting thing to watch in that game as far as the lineup, because we know they're going to be missing seven players, the U.S., that is, um, that were involved in the first game. So I think Anthony Robinson will get a run out. I think Tim Ream will start at center back next to Miazga. 
Um, Serginho Dest, I think, will move over to his natural right back spot. But in the central midfield, that's where the big questions are. You hit on one earlier. You know, where does Brendan, Brendan Aronson play? I think he gets the start at one of those more advanced number eight slash 10 roles. And I think that Yunus Musa could start or could come off the bench depending on how much he plays in the first game. But then that opens up a question to me is who's going to start as the number six with Tyler Adams having gone back to Leipzig? You know, do you, does Berhalter look at Sebastian Legette as a potential number six or does he put Owen Otosoe in as the number six, a young player who plays there for Wolves? Um, and if he does, you know, I, I do think he's going to try to get Legette some minutes. So, you know, does he play him on the right wing? Does he play him centrally? You know, there are some questions there of of kind of how he sees that number six spot. I mean, do you think he sees Legette as a six at all? I don't even think. I don't that's think That's not something so, but, I would even but consider. We're, we're a little further down the depth chart here. Jackson Ewell's not here. There are a couple players who, who would kind of naturally plug into that role. Um, and so, you know, maybe it is Otisoe. Jo- Johnny Cardoso's not here. Another player who's played that six. I mean, I think Acosta um, is a more natural fit in that Acosta spot Acosta could Legette. play in that number six yeah. spot for sure. And then... You know, again, how much does, does he give Musa a run out in the first game? He wants to get a minute centrally. So I, I would expect him to start again just to continue getting those reps at central midfield. So does Legette start out on the right wing? Does he give Nico Giacchini a I chance think, to start I think we'll right see wing? big rotation it, it, within yeah. that game, not just from starting lineup to starting lineup, but I think a lot of subs probably For sure. early on For in sure. that match. I would, though, expect to see Christian Pulisic at whatever the other position is that he didn't play in the first game. Like, if he starts central in the first game, that he'll be on the wing. And if he starts on the wing in the first game, that he'll play central in the second game. I would agree with that. Um, I do want to talk about Efra Alvarez. He did receive a call to Mexico's senior national team. Um, Burhalter was asked if he spoke to Alvarez, who is eligible to represent either the U.S. or Mexico, as we've discussed. Um, he's represented Mexico in official youth competitions, which means he can go to Mexico and still switch to the U.S. at a later date. Um, if he went to the U.S. for an official competition, he would not be able to go back to Mexico. That would be a done deal. Um, and I thought it was interesting because Burhalter said that he, he spoke with Alvarez about it and he advocated for him to go to Mexico and go to camp with Tata Martino uh, and, and get that experience. And the reason being is that Alvarez, who was part of the camps this winter um, with the U.S. men's national team, has been in the U.S. environment. And the only way for him to make an informed decision is for him to go into that environment down in Mexico with Mexico as well. And I thought that was really interesting. Um, I like it a lot, actually. I really like it. Uh, I think it's like a really, I don't, I don't know if it's like that earth shattering or anything like that. It was refreshing to hear a coach kind of speak in those terms. And I think that's something that would really, if I was the player in question there, that would really resonate with me, right? It would be like, you know what? This guy is looking out for my best interests, even when those might not be perfectly aligned with his own best interests, right? Because if you want to be really Machiavellian about it, Berhalter would be like, no, don't go to Mexico. Come with us, right? Never even give Tata the chance. Um, that's not what he did. He's putting the faith in his own program to do the recruiting for it. And I think it's interesting. I think it's, I think it's laudable. Um, I'm curious what you think though about it, Paul. Well, I've written a lot about this issue, partly because it's something I connect to having grown up in a family where my father is Costa Rican. My mother is American. And this idea of, are you more American than Costa Rican? Are you, do you feel more American? Do you feel more Costa Rican? How do you, you know, this idea, it's impossible to separate your, I don't want to say it's impossible, but there's a distinction between your national identity and your cultural identity. And it's very difficult sometimes to um, to marry those two or, and, and really there aren't many times in life in which you're forced to choose between a national identity and a cultural identity. I visited Efra Alvarez's home. I met his family. Um, you know, both of his parents, um, feel very proud of their son to represent Mexico, but also to represent the U.S. Both of them, um, work very hard and have worked very hard in East LA to give Ephra a chance and his brother a chance to, to pursue their dreams. They both immigrated from Mexico and, and obviously feel a very strong connection to their homeland. And Greg Berhalter talked about kind of trying to take emotion out of it 
to a certain extent and allow Efra Alvarez to make a decision based on what's best for his, for him and his career and make it less about quote unquote choosing. Are you more Mexican or are you more American? That's not the choice. That's, you know, Serginio Dest is not more American than he is Dutch because he chose to represent the U.S., nor is Yunus Musa more American than he is English. That's not what this is about. You know, sometimes this is about where you feel most comfortable as a professional, where you think the best opportunities will come, what what's the best for your growth. And it's hard to hear that because everyone wants it to be about emotion and, and oh, I choose this country. And there can still be that great patriotic, prideful element when you choose the country or when you play for the country. But it's not at the cost of decreasing your patriotism towards the other country that you identify with. And so for me, that's what this speaks to. It's, hey, this decision isn't about being Mexican or being American. It's about where do you feel most comfortable? Where do you think you're going to get the best opportunities? And and where do you think that it'll be the best for you, for you personally, as you go on your career because that's what this is. It's a, it's a career for these players. And that, and that's why I really like it. And it's an acknowledgement too of all of those things I just talked about, all of these difficult emotional parts of this decision and what that tug of war from outside, right? Everyone else telling you things can do to a player on the inside. Yeah. I think that's well said. Although I would say, and, and you know, I don't have the same background as you right? Like, I don't have that dual nationality sort of situation. Um, but I would say, like, and I understand where Berhalter is coming from when, when he's saying we want to take emotion out of the decision. Uh, and, and that's what he should be thinking about, right? It's present the facts, give Alvarez the full picture, and let him, you know, do what he wants with that, right? But for Alvarez himself, and I think this is particularly true for Mexican-American players, I would say, um, although I shouldn't minimize the experience of others, but you know, just how closely the cultures are tied, particularly in Southern California, where he's from, there is going to be an emotional element to it. And I think that's unavoidable. I think that's sort of what you were speaking to. Um, but yeah, no, it makes sense from Berhalter to, to say that, that he wants to take that out of it because that's not his, you know, that's not really his concern. He can't control that. He just needs to present the facts of what the U.S. is like from the national team standpoint and let Alvarez do with that what he will. The career element will will play into it, of course. That'll be a huge, huge, huge aspect of it too. But I imagine that there would be an emotional thing in, in, in play as well. There's absolutely no way to remove the emotional aspect of it. Because if the things that factor in include things like, you know, parental pride or the feeling of doing something for your parents. And I think we've all been there yeah. as as kids growing up of wanting to feel closer connection to your parents or to their backgrounds or to your own, obviously that yeah. means to your own identity. And so I remember, I mean, I never obviously got to a point of, of being ever good enough to, to, to have you, this. You choice. turned down the U S to no, go but to I Costa Rica. Saying ball. to my dad, you know, as a young kid, if I ever make it, you know, maybe I'll play for Costa Rica, right? Like, even though I grew up here in the U S was born sure. here, you know, speak better English than I do Spanish, write better English than I do Spanish. Um, my entire dad's family, my dad's the only one. He's one of nine kids. He's the only one from that family to come to Costa Rica. So I have, I mean, come to the U.S. Does come to the U.S. from Costa Rica. So I have dozens and dozens and dozens of Tenorio family members still in Costa Rica, right? And I feel a great connection to them, even though I don't live there and I've never lived there. And, but that was a way to communicate to my dad, you know, the connection I feel to him and who he is and who, and that part of me. And so you can't, you can't pull that out of the equation. That's going to factor in. It's yeah. just, Hey, why don't you also remember that a part of this is about where you feel comfortable and where yeah. you feel you can succeed and remembering that, you know, at the end of the day, man, the parents are going to be supportive. I remember sitting again in Ephra's living room and his dad saying, I feel just as proud when I see Ephra wearing a USA jersey as I do when I see him wearing a Mexico jersey, because to him, sure. it's about where his son has reached, right? And and that moment of of watching your child accomplish their dreams. So, 
you know, obviously I would imagine the U.S. is trying to kind of reflect some of that as well in this recruitment process. But it's just so complicated. It's so difficult. And I really feel bad for the players who are going through it in today's world, in the social media side of things, because I don't think people have much care for these very nuanced um decisions. <laughs> and I mean, yeah. I, I look back at when I first wrote about it and I wrote about Joe Corona and I wrote about um, uh, Junior Flores, who at the time was a, a top young prospect, went to Borussia Dortmund. He was El Salvador. He was Salvadoran. Um, I wrote about Paul Ariola in that story. And even yeah, I mean, then there it are plenty as, of names. It wasn't the as years. much, you know, they Edgar Castillo. Face, yeah, they didn't face as much of the, the scrutiny on Twitter and things like that. Instagram. Uh, and all the comments they were getting. And you even see players acknowledging that, right? Like Yunus Musa talked about seeing the American flags in his Instagram comments as, you know, feeling like he was like, be, he was wanted, um, by, by the American fans. So it's, it's just, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty crazy. And I just hope that whatever happens with Efra, that, you know, the same understanding is, is given by the fans as has been given by Burhalter in this case. Yeah, I think so. And some will. I think a lot will, honestly. I think most will even. Some won't. And that's that sucks. But that's kind of the rea- unfortunate reality of the world we live in. And not everyone's going to be great all the time. Uh, so that's kind of that. Uh, we try to be great all the time. And we're going to be continue to try to be great all the time on this podcast. After this break, we'll be right back. Hey, folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early. There are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation. There's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly. There's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there. There's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain. There are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively. But for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. And we are back, allocation disorder, transitioning away from U.S. men's national team. Roster talk, back into some MLS news, notes, trends, discussions, all of that good stuff. A couple of notable former MLS players are no longer former MLS players. They're returning to the league as of Wednesday, as of this recording. First, Victor Vasquez, former Toronto FC man, coming back to the league to reunite with Greg Vanny with the LA Galaxy on a one-year deal with an option for the 2022 season. And then in a bigger move, uh, Lucho Acosta uh, in, a, in a deal that I think Pablo Maurer and I were the first ones to report on. That feels like a long time ago. It probably was. I think over a month ago now. Um, has finally been made official. Cincinnati are acquiring him from Atlas in Liga MX. 
via DC United. They had to trade DC for his rights. I believe it's up to $550,000 in general allocation money plus a transfer fee. That's a three-year guaranteed contract with a one-year option on the end. And he will be a designated player for Cincinnati. So it's going to be interesting to see kind of how he fits there since he definitely trying to make a big leap as they open up this new stadium um, and as they look to rebound from two pretty miserable opening seasons in MLS. Paul, I go through those moves as an entry point into a broader discussion. This has been a really weird offseason from, first of all, how long it's going to be. When it's all said and done, uh, just because of the delayed start of the year to April 17th for the 2021 season. Second, because it's been really slow in terms of big moves. Um, by my count, I believe there have only been four designated player signings, um, this winter, two of them by Cincinnati with Acosta and Brenner, uh, and then Tomas Pochettino in Austin. He was signed earlier this winter. And Jao Paulo in Seattle, depending on if you want to count that, so it's three or four, he was on loan to the Sounders last year, and they made his signing permanent this offseason. So sort of a new signing, but not really. Um, those are the four DP deals we're talking about. Uh, that's way, way, way down from previous years. Some of that is because of COVID financial implications, um, but there are other factors in play here too. Uh, Jeff Reuter wrote about some of these in a, in a story a week or two ago uh, on The Athletic. Um, but, Paul, what, what's your take on this? Offseason? I feel like I don't have a good read or as good of a read on, on most teams as I usually do at this point. Yeah, I mean, I think Jeff's article was really good in that it pointed out some areas that this isn't just about MLS wanting to buy players, right? This comes down to clubs feeling less willing to sell because no one wants to sell when the market is low. You know, like if you are if you were trying to sell your house in in the city of Chicago when COVID hit, you probably pulled it off the market if you could, because you were going to have to take a big hit to when you were selling. And conversely, in the suburbs of most major American cities, you probably listed your house pretty darn quick because the market was fantastic in the suburbs. And I think something similar is happening in the soccer market right now. A lot of teams are kind of, I don't want to say pulling their players off the market, but are less willing to sell because they feel that they're selling at 20 or 30% less than what they could get when the market rebounds in a post-COVID economy. And that could be as soon as this summer. And so it has led to fewer opportunities or fewer deals that have been done for Major League Soccer teams who are going out and shopping. Now, I think there's also an added element to this in that once that window was extended by... MLS, it also kind of extended the timeline for these teams to kind of wait and see how these European seasons play out. 100%. Because there, there are going to be targets who their teams, I guess, kind of figure out where they stand, right? They're not going to go down or they are going to go down or they are not going to qualify for Europe or they are. And once those things happen, more sales start to occur. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see a little bit of a rush of signings in that in May, essentially, as we get towards the close of this this extended primary window. Yeah, I was actually talking to a GM just the other day who basically said that same exact thing. You know, um, first of all, the market is usually more active in the summer, uh, in, in abroad anyway, for those reasons that you just mentioned. The season's over in Europe and in many other leagues elsewhere around the world. So, you know, more guys are out of contract. You can bring them in. More teams are willing to deal, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but yeah, the extension of the transfer window, I think, is huge for that. We've talked about it in the context of these short-term loans that MLS players have gone on this winter. Um, but I think it's really, really big for teams looking to add reinforcements. Because when you talk about it, if a season ends in Europe on May 8th or May 15th, the window's open until June 1st, right? So you can theoretically bring a guy in, get him here, say May 15th, May 20th, May 25th, by the time he's done with quarantine and visa process and all of that. And he's essentially only missed a month of the season, right? And then you can theoretically hit the ground running with him. He's fit. He's been been keeping sharp. He's just come off of a full campaign. Um, so I think it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. I do anticipate that some teams will try and make moves. I anticipate probably a more active summer window, secondary window than usual in MLS. Um, 
you know, particularly you look at teams like NYCFC, right? Or a Toronto FC that still have open DP spots, higher profile profile clubs. Maybe LAFC has an open DP spot, depending on what happens with Brian Rodriguez, right? Maybe Orlando is flush with cash all of a sudden because they just landed an eight-figure transfer fee for Daryl DK in this potential world that we're talking about, right? So I think that's going to be really interesting to see how it plays out. But like, I legitimately don't really know. Like, I feel like I said it already. I'll say it again because like, I'm, I'm, I just feel like foggy. I feel like that's the best word to describe it. I feel foggy about MLS teams at this point, and I need to spend a little bit more time studying it. But, you know, at this point in preseason, I feel like I usually got a good sense of where things are heading and not this year. And Sam, we can add in that we haven't even touched on, but like the youth, you know, young money. Young money is is another reason why we don't know what teams are going to look like. Who's going to spend how much, you know, and where and how and when and how many slots are they yeah. going to get? Toronto FC, you've mentioned a number of times on this show. Toronto FC sitting there and saying, should should we sign an overage DP? Because that's going right. to limit potentially what we could do with, with young money. And is it worth it to have extra young money signings? Probably in some ways, maybe not. If you think it's too high of a risk anyway, and you're not going to get that much production, is it worth it? I mean, all of these things are being weighed and studied and discussed. And and you're right, it kind of leaves us in this place right now going into the season where already I think we feel weird about this season because it's been such a long off season that you're kind of like, yeah, what the heck are these teams going to look like? And then you add in... <laughs> and no one's the, streaming their preseason games, so we can't even, can't, we can't even get can a only sneak watch preview. Them. You can only watch the preseason games of the market you live in. I mean, I watched about one minute of the Chicago Fire preseason game <laughs> the other day. I was, you know, I was taking care of my Paul daughter. Paul texted me this. I know I, where it's going. I, I watched you got to tell the full story. I, I turned it on and I was like, all right. I had told Sam on Friday night that I was going to watch an MLS preseason game on the weekend while I was trying to like hang with with Jane, my daughter. And he was like, why would you do that? And I was like, because I'm just trying to be like, you know. An MLS reporter, responsible. To a high degree. He's and, just trying and, to do his job. And so I <laughs> why? turned. Why would you do that? <laughs> so I turned on the game, and within like twelve seconds, they passed the ball back to Bobby Shuttleworth, and it went under his foot and into the goal. And I said, "Nope, that's it. I'm done with this game for." <laughs> you tried. Oh wait, I tried. I gave it my best effort. I'll get a report later from other people. So, uh, yeah, MLS preseason. What can you say? Uh, I, I, I should try and watch a few of those games myself, you know, try and do my job perhaps as well. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I am going to put you on the spot here and if you need me to go first, cause I have a team in mind for my answer. Um, you know, I mentioned that we feel foggy and there's a lack of clarity. Is there like a under the radar team that you feel good about and you feel this is heading in a good direction and you feel pretty firm in that stance. Do you, do you want me to give my take first before you uh, have to give yours? Because I am putting you on the spot right now. I have two that jumped to mind right away, but I'd like to hear yours first. I definitely don't want to steal yours. So you go first and then I'll go. Mine is Colorado. Um, they have a very full roster. They're basically bringing most of their, pretty much all of their key parts back from last season. Um, second full season under Robin Frazier. They made the playoffs as the five seed in the West last season. They lost to Minnesota in a road game, in a single elimination playoff match. Um, I really like, I like where they're headed. You know, I was thinking about this this morning, but like we did a story a couple of years ago that was best MLS roster construction, you know, relative to, to money spent. And I think the Rapids would probably be near the Near, certainly in the top half, maybe the top quartile of those rankings, if we were to do them today. Um, they made mistakes, like a lot of them, <laughs> uh, a few years ago after they, after they shocked the world and finished second in the supporter shield standings in 2016. But they learned from those mistakes and they started taking advantage of, of players in the league and trying to go out and get them. And that's really what they've built around is players who weren't getting a, a, a fair run out or a fair shake. With other teams, guys like the aforementioned Kellen Acosta, Jonathan Lewis, Lala Sabubakar, guys who were undervalued. They brought them in. They said, we see something in you. And those guys have turned into good starters for them, for the most part. Um, so I, I admire what they've done out there um, without spending very much money. Uh, and, and I like their chances to, to be a solid team in the Western Conference this year. 
that give you enough time? Yeah, I, I like I said, I think two teams came to mind right away um, as teams that we don't really talk about because we kind of just don't really think about them as like needing to like restructure yeah. completely. The one for me is Portland. You know, it's another team bringing back a lot of the pieces from last year. Have added a couple nice complimentary pieces as well. Um, spent some money this offseason, not DP money, obviously, but they've spent some money to bolster the squad. Um, made a couple moves. Um, on fullbacks, they moved some fullbacks out, right, as well. Um, so, you know, Portland's a team that I think could could be a strong contender right off the bat with a, with a roster that was decent last year and has gotten, you know, has got, I, I would argue probably gotten better or we think has gotten better depending on how these signings perform. Um, and the other is LAFC. And and the reason I think that is Brian Rodriguez has two under the radar teams, Portland no, and LAFC. The, I thought your question was like <laughs> under the radar in terms of big teams that we just don't really hey, talk about. You know, you, you take it anywhere you want it, Paul. I'm sorry. Well, I thought my interpretation was we don't really spend much time talking about LAFC's roster because everyone's just like, oh, they're good. They weren't that good last year. They They didn't have a great year. I expect them to be better this year. Even with Brian Rodriguez potentially being sold or on loan for the beginning of the year, I think that LAFC is going to be better this year. I think that we they're a team that we could see making a big splash in the summer, maybe even two, depending on what happens. So LAFC is another team that I just kind of have put to the side in, as far as my offseason evaluation and just thought, okay, I, I, I think that they're going to be a quality team. You know, they're going to be a quality team better than they were last year. I think Portland's going to be a quality team better than they were last year. And I agree with what you said, you know, about Colorado. The interesting thing is in the East, there aren't a lot of teams that I'm looking at being like, hey, I I really think that that's going to be a good team. There's been a lot more Same. of a makeover of teams in the East. Like NYCFC has work to do still. Red Bull is completely rebuilding its team. You know, the Chicago Fire... I think they could be better simply from having a lot of these guys for a full year now and maybe getting a couple guys back healthy. But who knows, right? Who knows what they're going to look like? They they have a lot of young guys on that roster who who didn't look homegrown, who didn't look like they were ready to compete last year. And if they don't step up this year, you know, they're, they're a thin roster again or a thinner roster again. So... I look around the East, Atlanta, complete makeover. I have no idea what to uh, let me. To let me give you a team, two teams in the East I feel good about. Columbus, easy MLS yeah. Cup champs, and they've added right. Yeah, they've got. They better. didn't really lose, and they they've added. And Orlando, another team that's a little bit under the radar, doesn't get enough national attention uh, for the job that they did last year. Uh, you know, they're bringing in Pato, <laughs> legend. Uh, but like legitimately, I'm, I'm genuinely curious to see what happens there. I think losing DK would be a blow, but this isn't a guy who was even an every game starter for them last year, right? In his rookie season, he was good, right? And he came on strong as the year went on. So I'm not trying to minimize that loss, but it probably wouldn't be the end of the world. So those are two teams in the East that, that I feel pretty confident about. Philly is one who knows where that's going, man. Cincinnati. Like no Aaron, I mean, no Aronson, no McKenzie. Yeah, the East The East is pretty wide open. Toronto, new coach. I actually think the Red Bulls will do some good things. I've heard great things about Struber as a coach. I think he fits their model well. They're not spending money. Everything they're doing is loan, 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 right? Um, but I am curious to see where they are headed. Uh, I'll throw you another Western team, too, that I think is probably going to take a leap forward this year. Dallas. Um, and not because of really any new signings that they've made or anything like that, but you look at Tanner Tessman, Jesus Ferreira, right? I'm expecting both of those guys to take pretty solid steps forward for that team. And then if Paxton Pomacall can, can stay healthy, right? Then he should make a substantially greater impact than he did last year when he hardly played at all because of injuries. Um, so that's another one where I'm expecting to see a little bit of a leap forward. Um, so yeah. There we go. Those we have some clarity, but I mean, you you mentioned in the East, it's, it doesn't make a lot of sense right now. So we'll see how it plays out. And with that, I think we're going to take another quick break, another two break show. This is going to be our new normal thing. We're trying to be a professional podcast now. Took us a year, but we're getting there. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs, who would like to remind you when you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. You don't want to end up with Ryan Graham and Joe. Just kidding. 
Just kidding. Very much just kidding. Because I was very fortunate to have the three of them all join the show. And I had existing relationships with all three of them that allowed me to know that they could handle the, 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 uh, the amount of work that would be required, that they could be diligent in their tasks and be very effective on mic. And all three of them are. But again, that's because you have the existing relationship. If you don't feel like you have that with potential hires, then LinkedIn is going to make it very, very easy, and they're going to make it feel like you're connected to that person. They have a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire because it gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. But when you are setting the requirements and making it very specific as to what you're looking for, you can very quickly narrow it down to find the right candidate for that position. Hiring is easy when you have that many candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. 2.5 million small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring, and you can too. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash TSS. That's linkedin.com slash TSS to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Thank you very much to LinkedIn for sponsoring today's episode. We are back. Final segment of this week's show, Allocation Disorder. I mentioned this guy just a minute ago, Daryl DK. Uh, there was a story that came out in the BBC, I believe, uh, about a week ago now, about him and his exploits at Barnsley, uh, who he's killing it over there. And they're not, they're winning a ton of games. He scored an absurd goal. Uh, recently, just an absolute rocket from a, from a position on the field that you would not expect anyone to really shoot from, uh, right into the upper 90. Uh, so he's turning some heads in a very good way. And apparently, Orlando received a bid from a big six EPL club. So that's Liverpool, Arsenal, Manchester City, Manchester United, Chelsea, and Tottenham, um, of $10 million with a 20 million, 20% sell on. And they turned it down. Uh, in hopes of a bigger bid materializing. Paul, we got to talk about this, man. That's a lot of money for a guy who, while he's shown really well, doesn't exactly have a long professional resume at this point. Yeah. I mean, I'm kind of torn on this one in that when you get an offer like this, if it was real, you kind of have to take it. But on the other hand, I'm, I, I also understand the idea that like, you don't really accept the first bid you get on a player, right? Like the expectation is if that's if that's their opening offer, then there's going to be wiggle room to move that offer up. I mean, in well, do, do we up. know that was the first offer or that was what they ended up rejecting? I don't think we know that answer. So, yeah, I mean, but if it was as reported already rejected an offer, right? And it was like, a, yeah. you know, then clearly Orlando City believes that offer can move up. Now, I don't think it's going to move up much from 10 million. Like this is not, he's not a $20 million player unless he starts to score at a, an astounding rate in the championship over these next two months. Um, but if they can get anything over $10 million for DK and a, apparently keep a 20% sell on from that number, you have to do it. You have to do it. And if they don't do it, we're, we're headed down the potential of Lucho Acosta, DC United territory. And, and, and Orlando, or Kyle Laren territory. Kyle, I was going to say Kyle Laren is a better comp. <laughs> where, where they just absolutely buffed that. Like, just totally, totally. They buffed it. Buffed it. Buffed it? Biffed that, it? I don't know. They buffed took it. a, they swung and they missed. It was it wasn't not good. good. It was not they handled well. They didn't do well. good. They did bad. <laughs> so, yeah. They got to sell. Um, I mean, I hear you, but I think it's kind of like part of me is like, it's kind of cool that they're betting on him like this because clearly they believe in him. Right. Because if if you don't believe in like you, they believe in him that he's going to not only continue doing well at Barnsley, but do even better than he has been doing. Right. Because if you're turning that down, you're like, all right, well, he's going to prove that he's worth even more. And that's kind of exciting and kind of cool. They know this player better than any other club in the world. Let me just say really quickly, it's definitely not boffed it. I did a quick Google while you were talking. It's middle <laughs> English for to engage in sexual intercourse with. So Whoa. We'll we'll stick with the biffed it. You boffed that one. I did. I well, yeah. I that's a new thing. I, every show I say something incorrect. Are we gonna have to bleep that? We might. We might. <laughs> it's gonna the be our first English, bleep of allegations. Middle English censors. Sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. Um Well, I'm rattled now. 
with all this boff talk. <laughs> who, who wouldn't be? <laughs> um, I think it's kind of cool that they're betting on him like this. And I don't know if it's smart. We might be writing columns about it in the future. What they, what were you doing, Orlando City? Um, but I mean, I don't know. I, I, I like the, I like the decision and the process better than I did DC United's with Lucho Acosta, given where those two players are in their careers at the res- respective times and given where MLS is right now in terms of being a selling league compared to what it was. When was the Lucho Acosta thing? 2019? In the summer of 2019? Um, it's a much different place now, right? And that concept is starting to be proven and, and teams are willing to pay money. Isn't the option for DK? For Barnsley, twenty million or something like that. Yeah, I don't but know. When I was tra- reporting that out, are I there was tra- basically- are there triggers there, or is that just no? It's just a, okay. it's, a, it's an option to buy, and it, I was told it was just kind of thrown on there with a number that's not going to happen. You know, so it wasn't like with any real expectation for that to be picked up. And and by the way, we've we've kind of people have mentioned like, oh, like if there's a real offer out there for him at like twenty five million, then he could he could absolutely be purchased for twenty million and then immediately resold. Not really, because it's eighty percent, right? It's there's still a twenty percent sell on. So if you sell, if you buy him for twenty million dollars on this option with the twenty percent sell on, and then you sell him for twenty five million dollars, well, Orlando gets twenty percent of that twenty five million dollars, which is what five million dollars. And so you bought a player <laughs> for twenty, and then you sold him for twenty five, and then you have to pay five million to Orlando. And so you bought a pl- player for twenty, and you got a profit of. Zero dollars because you only had twenty million dollars, so it doesn't make any sense unless someone's going to spend more than twenty five million dollars yeah, on Daryl DK, which you isn't going to. Or if they're, or if they're thinking it's not about the profit, but it's about the, it's about the journey. You know, it's about the memories we made along the way, and those are priceless, Paul. Right. I suppose it gets it gets down to that idea of is someone willing to spend more than twenty five million dollars on Daryl DK, and the answer is probably not. I mean, not right now. But like, who knows, you know, like, like Ryan Brewster, right? With Sheffield United. And I hope I'm not mispronouncing that. I always mix up whether it's Ryan or Rian. Doesn't matter. That's a weird tangent that no one needs to know about. Uh, he got bought for, I think, 23 million pounds by Sheffield and he was super experienced England youth international. Uh, he was out at Liverpool. He went on loan to Swansea for the second half of the championship season last year. I believe he scored 10 goals in 20 games. And again, different level of prospect, right? But DK now has three goals in nine games for Barnsley, right? Not all of which have been starts. Um, and if he continues on, right? And he gets that goal ratio to, to one every two games. Maybe it can be fifteen million, right? Maybe I have Orlando no make problem the right with that idea. Fifteen million dollars. If he continues to score, or if he increases that scoring rate, yeah, and he's doing well in the championship. There are going to be a lot of teams that look at his skill set and say he fits really well for us. He, he can translate to a Premier League team, especially one who's you know a, a kind of a a Premier League team that knows that they're going to have to be playing a lot of long and direct soccer to to survive in the Premier League. He fits that really well. And it actually makes him very interesting for the U.S. national team as well because that's not how they play. But they do want to base their system off of getting those wingers into space, running in behind the back line and playing off of the forward, right? Whether it's Jesus Ferreira as a false nine or ideally someone like Josh Sargent or Josie Altador who are very good at checking back, finding the ball and, and making the pass off of that movement. And late in games, if you have two really good dynamic wingers and you're trying to find a goal, putting in a guy like Daryl DK, who's very good at essentially target forward play and helping players move off of him and also has good runs into the box and movement in the box. Now, when he spins off and and gets running forward, you know, he becomes an intriguing option for Greg Berhalter. And we're going to get a chance to see him play with the full team here. Um, We we saw this winter in a a December camp before the transfer, um, but with this, this confidence from the English championship. So interesting player all the way around. And uh, it would be great to see him sold, but from Orlando that quickly. It would, yeah. This was a free player out of the draft. So yeah. the fact that they could make $10 million on him off the jump with a sell-on is incredible. It's incredible. Yeah. No, it is. Uh, and, you know, Barnsley's in sixth in the championship as of this recording. That's in the playoff places. So promotion is not out of the question for them. Um, and if 
if DK plays a big role in that, maybe it's not 20 million, but maybe they negotiate it down to 15 with Orlando if they get, they get promoted. So we'll see. Uh, gonna be interesting. Paul, you want to talk about, uh, San Antonio, San Antone down in USL? You reported some news, uh, about some things that they have going down there. I think on Sunday night. Um, so why don't you tell us about that and, and tell us about what it means, uh, for American soccer at large? I think what it means is that people are looking everywhere for talent in the U.S. right now. And, and this is kind Hold of. On. T- tell us what you reported first, Paul. Well, sorry. First of all, I reported <laughs> that Jose Gallegos is, uh, on his way or already now at Bayern Munich. Um, he's going to get a chance to essentially, I don't want to call it a trial. It's essentially a, um, a final dance maybe before a transfer, right? He's going to a verification, a verification of what they've seen at USL level. There's interest in purchasing him. They'd like to see him in person. And if this goes well, then he's going to be, to be bought by Bayern Munich. And I think it speaks to the level to which European teams are willing to look for talent in the U S. And, you know, when I, when I was at Bayern Munich, I asked kind of what their, how they were trying to scout the U.S. and why they made this this partnership with uh, FC Dallas and and their answer was if they they felt like if they were going to scout the U.S. as efficiently and as well as they scout Germany they would need to hire at least a thousand scouts to do so. Okay, so obviously that wasn't economically viable, which would and probably it, be a factor more than the number of soccer scouts employed in the entire country right now. By every club, for sure, professional, for club. sure, and it, give, it 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 speaks to the challenge that every club and and the U.S. soccer faces in scouting this country. It's it's impossible to do so to the degree to which European countries are scouted by by their respective national teams and by their the bigger clubs in that um, in that country. But what they decided to do instead was to partner with FC Dallas because they knew that FC Dallas had the best academy in the United States, and they also trusted FC Dallas to tell them of the top players that they're seeing in the U.S. And so my guess would be that there was some communication here between FC Dallas and Bayern Munich that this was a player worth looking at. And, um, you know, I, I will say I've spoken to scouts, um, Premier League scouts who are in charge of North America, and they are watching USL games. And this, to me, is one of the most important areas of growth for American soccer is USL teams in markets where MLS isn't touching starting academies and developing players. Because if you look at Chris Richards from Alabama, you know, Bobby Wood from Hawaii, there are places that MLS teams aren't reaching and they just need an opportunity. They need Mm -hmm. a team in a professional environment. And USL teams are starting to do that. And the ones who are doing it well and who are investing well, like San Antonio, they're going to start to see these dividends as well. Yeah. And it's, you mentioned it's huge for the American soccer ecosystem, right? Like I spoke with Michael Parkhurst the other day because he's taking a minority ownership stake in a USL team that's going to be moving to or expanding to Pawtucket, Rhode Island in 2023. He's from Rhode Island. And now maybe this isn't the greatest example because it's like Pawtucket is, is closer to Gillette Stadium where the Revs play and train than Boston. Um, so <laughs> admittedly not a perfect example, but one of his main motivations was to give kids in Rhode Island something that's super accessible to them that they can use as an example and he's like, you know, this is an area that hasn't been a hotbed of soccer talent historically, although there have been some good players, him and Jeff Cameron, I think most notably in the recent crop to come out of Rhode Island. Um, there have been some good players, but it, it gives kids something accessible to look up to and to try and emulate, right? And that's the starting point. And then if you can get them into an academy and you can get them into a first team's training session, then you can really accelerate the development and maybe produce some some players for MLS for USL for the national team potentially and it's not just Parkhurst that's doing this right you mentioned San Antonio DeMarcus Beasley's doing it in Fort Wayne right he's part owner of a USL or a 2B USL team there Charlie Davies trying to do it in New Hampshire right where he's trying to bring a USL team so it's cool that this is happening not just in USL and MLS but also by former American soccer players um, that are doing this and, and trying to be a part of this on, on an ownership level. It's kind of interesting to me. Um, the more we can close those geographic gaps, right? The better it will be for American soccer as a whole. And the more USL along with MLS can sort of expand into the global market and become a real player in terms of developing, developing players that go on to play at a high level. 
the better for American soccer as a whole. So it's cool to see that maturation. I would also note that this is going to send a signal to MLS teams that they also have to start yeah. scouting USL better. And if if USL, and I'm not talking about scouting USL for the journeyman veteran who's going to add some depth to your team, right. or even the guy who's in their prime, who, again, is going to be a depth piece for your team. And, and you have to talk about the salary differences between what they could get to be a star in USL versus what they could get to be the third or fourth guy. Right, but position. can you sign the 16-year-old who's but playing when, when these clubs like Sacramento and San Antonio, and and you know if you see more, if you start to see Louisville or Indy, whatever, sign these younger players Birmingham, that they're developing. Where some of these kids that Dallas has signed, Richards, Tessman, Cervania, right. they're all from Birmingham. Cervania's brother is in Birmingham's academy right now. You know, He's on their first team. Yeah. They have to start to, to scout and sign these players and pay money and, and recognize that this is part of that they're going to have to part of the ecosystem, that they shouldn't be getting beat out by European teams for these young players. And maybe it costs them more than they want to admit or swallow. But that's just part of it, man. And and I hope and it's it's a, an important part for the growth of the game. It's 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 going to help MLS in the long run if they if MLS can incentivize more USL teams to put money into their academy because they're they're selling players just like MLS is incentivized to put more money yeah. into their academy because they're selling players. Guess what? This country is going to start producing more and more and more good players. It's a good thing for MLS. Follow the money. Just follow the money and then take it to Buff Joe's. Thanks for listening to Allocation Disorder. <laughs> I'm Sam. He's Paul. Uh, we'll be back next week. Coming full circle there for you folks. I know that was abrupt. Hopefully you kept up. Uh, but thank you for listening. We'll be back next week uh, with more talk about American soccer. Uh, we'll have some Olympic talk next week. We'll see if the U23s end up qualifying or not. Uh, we'll have a better idea of that next week. Thank you for listening. Uh, it's been Allocation Disorder. Until next time.